This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans. Romans chapter 13. Let's hear what God has to say to us today. And I've titled my message, Social Obligations and the Order of the New Dawn. I had a few complaints that my titles were not quite sinister and subversive enough, so there you go. So for our poor guest today, um, you thought you were attending a harmless little church where we just drink tea and eat little sandwiches, but in fact, we are an underground society. And the order of the new dawn, it's those of us who have devoted our lives to the service of the world's true king. And we are holding ourselves in readiness for the day when the powers of evil are overthrown and all humanity is liberated, liberated from the powers of sin and death. Our gospel has tremendous public implications. It's not just for a private, interior, emotional world. So our text this afternoon is Romans chapter 13, which may be familiar to you as a chapter about our relationship with the civil government. But that, in fact, is only half of the 14 verses. Paul is talking about all of our social obligations in this world. How can we discharge them with the keen awareness that this present and evil age is about to end and God is going to bring history to a glorious finale? How can we live our lives in light of that? So without further ado, let's turn to God's word, Romans chapter 13. And here's what Paul writes. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from, the one, from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. Now, brothers and sisters, great empires can be conquered by force. But to maintain them, you need to use propaganda. You need to convince the conquered people that your rule is actually for their good. And here the city of Rome in the ancient world had acquired this huge empire sprawling from Spain in the west all the way to Armenia in the east, from Libya in the south to Britain in the north. And since everyone knew back then that only a god was capable of subduing and controlling the entire known world, it was pretty much inevitable that Augustus and his imperial imperial successors took upon themselves divine titles such as Savior, Son of God, and Lord. After all, Roman rule had brought peace and prosperity and security to all peoples. What a Roman description from the year 9 BC found near Ephesus describes as the gospel. And look at this slide. Here's what it said. 9 BC, since Caesar, when revealed, surpassed the hopes of all who had anticipated the good news, good news is the word translated gospel in the New Testament, that exact word, not only going beyond the benefits of those who preceded him, but rather leaving no hope of surpassing him for those who will come. Because of him, the birthday of God began good news for the world. And I enjoy the fact that inscription was from the year 9 BC, only a few years before, on a little town on the eastern fringe of the empire, the birthday of God really did happen in history. In those days, the Gospel of Luke tells us, as we're familiar from the Christmas story, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be enrolled. And everyone had to go to their own town to register. And of course, the emperor is not taking a census to get some data to offer better social services and health care. He's gathering the documentation he needs to get everyone feeding into the tax system to maximize revenue for Rome. But this enormous bureaucratic project, which must have had hundreds of thousands, thousands, if not millions of subject peoples on the move, is actually God's way of arranging Jesus' birth in David's royal city of Bethlehem. And upon his birth, what do the angels announce? Good news of great joy for all the people. A Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. So we could go on through the New Testament uncovering these subtle ways that early Christian writers were undermining the idolatrous claims of the Roman Empire. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, brutally executed as a threat to Roman authority. Now, Christians are claiming he has been exalted at the right hand of God. He has been given the name that is above every name, and he's been promised that to him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ not Caesar, is Lord. And it's really crucial that we understand this background because otherwise we might misread Romans 13 as a command to blindly obey every order of the state no matter what. John Stott tells a story of how in uh, 1985, Michael Cassidy, who was the founder of African Enterprise, he was granted an interview with P.W. Botha, who was the president of South Africa. And this was during the waning days of apartheid in South Africa. So here he is, invited to meet with the president as part of this uh, national movement towards reconciliation. And Cassidy is hoping for some signs of repentance, some signs of change. But 
reconciliation was not to be. Here's, here's what he says what happened. I was immediately aware on entry to the room that this was not to be the sort of encounter for which I had prayed. The president began by standing to read me part of Romans 13. In other words, sit down, shut up, and do what the government tells you to do, no matter how unjust. Is that what submission means? Does Romans 13 mean that Christians in South Africa were obliged to support this government policy of apartheid? And does Romans 13 mean that God wants us to support every demand of our own governments, no matter how unjust or how evil? Absolutely not. Our chapter actually puts limits on the state's legitimate authority. The state does have authority, but it doesn't have absolute authority without limits. In fact, as Tom Wright points out, when Paul calls the state the servant of God, it's actually a pretty severe demotion for someone who was demanding worship as God himself. We respect the government and we give them honor, but we do not worship them. We do not give the state everything that it's asking for from us. And yes, we obey the government as far as possible, but there is a point where our submission ends and obedience to God continues. And this follows a long biblical tradition. Think all the way back in the book of Exodus and the midwives who refused to murder the Israelite newborn, newborn boys. They disobeyed Pharaoh's command. There's Daniel's three friends refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idols. And of course, the apostles insisting to the Jewish council, we must obey God rather than men. Now, Paul wrote Romans in the beginning of Nero's reign. Nero, we remember as a very evil and somewhat crazy emperor, but in his younger years as emperor, he was under the tutelage of the wise old Stoic philosopher Seneca. And at that time, Rome was you know, more or less benevolent. And Paul could remind Christians, you don't have anything to fear if you do what is right. But things are about to change And by the time John writes the book of Revelation 25 years later, he's describing Rome as the great prostitute sitting on the seven hills, drunk with the blood of God's holy people. But even in terrible persecution, John, the apostle in exile, is not urging the people of God to take up arms in rebellion against the state. He's urging them to to ready themselves for the day when the true king of kings and lord of lords appears on his white horse to crush the forces of evil and to bring true justice and love into the world. So we've had to clear away some misconceptions and misunderstandings of Romans 13. But positively, what does it actually mean? We don't want to spend all our time on what it doesn't mean. What does it actually mean? And it's basically this, that behind every government, we need to perceive the hand of God. As Jesus told Pilate at his trial, you would have no authority except if it was granted to you from above. And so God is the one who raises up and casts down rulers, and he's doing so. He's exercising his sovereignty over governments in this world in order to maintain at least, at least some order. And we all have cause to grumble about our governments. Who here loves their government and has no criticism whatsoever about how things are being managed back home? Zero hands are being raised, let the record show, right? We all have cause to gripe and grumble about how our politicians uh, mismanage things and are motivated by greed and the lust for power. But, and some of us have much more cause to complain about this than others. 
Let's be honest. But even a bad government is holding back a flood of anarchy. There are a lot of authoritarian regimes, especially in this part of the world. But at least there are not gangs of rapists and murderers roving the streets. And for most of us, for most of us, our governments back home are generally speaking, not perfectly, but generally speaking, they're punishing the bad guys and they are protecting the good guys. And it's really easy to whine and complain about our government. It's like a little sport for some of us. But really, when is the last time you sincerely thanked God for the gift of the authorities that he has ordained? Having a government to protect you is a really good thing, which we would only miss if it vanished and this turned into Somalia. That would be really lousy. The fact is, as Paul mentions, not once or twice, but three times in our passage, governments are servants of God. Literally, they're ministers. So when you go down to the Hall of Justice to get a building permit, the woman behind the desk there is just as much a minister of God as Pastor David is. Whether or not she realizes it, she's doing God's will. And as a sign of our submission to God, we submit to them, recognizing that in God's order of things, he has placed them above us. And that's a good thing. Now yesterday, Michelle and I had, had separate events to attend during the day, so we had to hire a babysitter to watch the kids for a few hours. And we reminded the kids, as all parents do when they go off and leave their children with a stranger, she's in charge. And if you disobey her, it's the same as disobeying mom and dad. We've temporarily delegated a measure of parental authority to her. Now, it's obviously not unlimited authority, right? They should not obey if she tells them to set the cat on fire or to launch an assault in the Greek embassy across the street. There are reasonable limitations to her authority. But outside of such extreme cases, they should do what she tells them. And if mom and dad come home and discover they have not been listening to the babysitter, we're not going to be happy parents. In the same way, God has delegated some of his authority to the civil government. And he won't be pleased when he comes home and finds us running around refusing to go to bed. (laughs) Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has appointed. And if we're serious about obeying God, we are going to be serious about obeying our civil governments. And that's why God has given the state the power and authority to punish evildoers. You might remember from chapter 12 that Christians are not to avenge themselves because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And one way that God takes vengeance on evil, even in this world, is by giving the power of the sword to the state as his agents of wrath, Paul says. And that is actually good news for those of us who are not criminals, what I hope is a solid majority here this afternoon. That's good news. Still, Paul says, there is a higher reason to obey the government than fear. Fear is a good motive, but there's a higher motive, and that is our conscience. Because behind the government, we see the hand of God. And therefore, we should adhere conscientiously to the laws of the state, even when no one would find out. And that might mean self-reporting some income on your tax return that the government would not know about or applying for a building permit for renovations that no one can even see from the street. The fact is, God knows about that stuff. And our loyalty is to him and our aim is to please him. Conscience. So that's why we want to discharge all the obligations that we owe the state. 
We should pay our taxes and our revenue, by which Paul means customs fees and things like that. And we should pay it with good grace as the dues we owe society. We are much better off paying taxes and getting protection and services than if there were no taxes and no government. Trust me. And we should also pay appropriate, not unlimited, but appropriate respect and honor, not just to their faces, but behind their backs. And even though we don't worship the authorities as gods or offer sacrifices to them, we still respect them as God's agents. So we still have one foot in this age, and therefore we should do our best to be good citizens wherever we find ourselves, to be the kind of people that not only the government but the wider society is glad that we're here and glad that we are contributing. But there is a higher law than the state, and there is a greater obligation we owe than taxes. Paul says there is one debt that's always going to remain outstanding that we will never be able to pay, and that is the debt of love that we owe one another. See, our social obligations as Christians don't end when we've paid our taxes and obeyed the law. God commands something that even the most idealistic utopian state would never dare to command, that we love each other sincerely from the heart. And this is a debt we continually owe one another. There's never going to be a time we can say, great, I have loved enough. I can check that off my list. No more need to love today. And that actually, I find, that presses pretty hard against people like me because I'd prefer to limit my social obligations as much as possible, keep people at a distance so I can discharge my debt and have plenty left over for myself. But God says, no, there's always going to be a debt. There's always going to be an obligation of love that we owe other people. And you might feel a bit unhappy with this language of debt and obligation. Is that really consistent with the gospel of grace? I thought Jesus came to pay debts. Now it sounds like he's creating debts. Don't don't true gifts come with no strings attached? So recently, this professor, John Barclay of Durham University, published a book entitled Paul and the Gift. And this, this has been acclaimed as the most profound contribution to Paul studies in the last 20 years. It's 650 pages long, and I'm going to read them to you now. Okay, how about just a few sentences, briefly summarizing this so you don't have to read it. See, in the ancient world, as in much of the world today, gift, a gift, always came with an obligation to reciprocate. Always. And this idea that gifts should really come with no strings attached is a purely modern and Western notion. There's none of that in the ancient world. And I I think I mentioned maybe a couple months ago how our landlords will come down and knock on our door with a plate of food. And it would be shameful, we would be breaking a strong cultural obligation in Georgia should we return that plate empty. The gift is creating this relationship where there is a back and forth, like it is in so many cultures. See, not only are there strings attached, the strings are actually the point. Do you see this? Giving of gifts back and forth is actually creating social ties. And what our landlords are really wanting from us is a closer relationship with them that we are being invited into. And to just take the food and resent the social expectations is being a shameful and ungrateful kind of person. That's really wrong. So in the same way, when Paul and the rest of the New Testament consistently speak of God's grace, his gift to us who are sinful and unworthy and undeserving, as creating a strong obligation to live a life worthy of the gospel. 
There are strings attached to Christ's gift on the cross. As Paul said in chapter 12, we, in view of God's mercy, we ought to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to Christ, and he has absolute claim over us as our Lord. Just the other week, Bruno was telling a bunch of us over dinner about really the sad state of evangelicalism in Brazil. In Brazil, almost, almost 25% of the population are evangelicals. It was only 5% in 1970. A quarter of the population almost, out of 200 million people, are evangelicals. And there are Pentecostal megachurches everywhere. And they form a huge voting bloc, powerful enough to vote politicians in and out of power, really. And I think there was even an evangelical president of Brazil not that long ago. But these politicians are just as greedy and just as corrupt as everyone else. And it seems that evangelicals in Brazil are pretty much just as nominal as their Catholic neighbors. And that's not just a problem in Latin America. I mean, Kenya and Uganda are two of the most, statistically speaking, two of the most evangelical nations in the world. And they have huge problems also with corruption and greed. Where private faith is just that, private. It has no social and public influence and effect. And that's really a scandal that all Christians should feel shame about because it's also an issue in all of our countries as well, isn't it? And God forbid that any of us here put a stumbling block in front of those who are considering the claims of Christ upon their lives. See, Christianity has only turned the world upside down when it was able to demonstrate the gospel's power by radically changed lives, by showing forth genuine attractive virtue to the world. See, what most attracted converts in the early years of the church was a community of love in a world marked by cruelty, greed, and sexual depravity. As one second or third century Christian observed, beauty of life causes strangers to join the ranks. We do not talk about great things, we live them. Could we say the same about our own public walk of faith as Christians. We don't just talk about great things, we actually live them. And Protestants, sadly, have been often guilty of downplaying the ethical demands of the New Testament. Hey, who doesn't love the early chapters of Romans? You know, Jesus died for our sins, it's forgiven, no condemnation. But the later stuff we tend to kind of put to the side a bit. As Jesus confronts us in the Sermon on the Mount with these radical claims of discipleship, And as Paul urges us to live lives worthy of the gospel, I wonder, is it really helpful to say, as I have often said myself, Christianity is a relationship. It's not about rules. Is that really accurate to the spirit of the New Testament? That would seem to limit my faith to the private interior world of my emotions and downplay the ethical demands I have that need to be expressed in in my and our public and social lives. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Sounds like there might be some rules involved in that relationship, right? There are rules, and those who claim to live under Christ's authority must take them seriously. And man, it would certainly make our message more appealing to a watching world. I think non-Christians out there who see Christian behavior really wish that we would actually follow some rules and keep them and make this world a better place. The highest law, as Jesus himself said, is that we love God and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, to free us from free us up to commit adultery and to murder and to steal. Jesus came to urge upon us the requirements of the law even more intensely than did the scribes and the Pharisees that we love God and we love each other from the heart. Not just external behavior, but external behavior that is the fruit of a heart changed by the Holy Spirit. And when we love each other, we can be sure that we are doing God's will and pleasing him. As Paul said in Romans 8, just a few chapters ago, God has given his son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here we are. The burden of sin's condemnation has been lifted. Thank God. The power of the spirit of resurrection life is within us. And we can and we must fulfill our obligation to love one another. No way of escaping that. And here we are called to this life of Christian virtue. But Paul says that it should be lived with one eye on the clock. Do this, Paul says, probably referring to all these ethical commands that go back to chapter 12, and there's quite a few that he lists. Do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And it's really striking how closely the New Testament links the way we live our lives with the future kingdom of God. Jesus and Paul And Peter and John never talk about the day of the Lord as fuel for idle speculation about times and seasons. It's always connected with our discipleship here and now. The nearness of the climax of history should actually energize us to live in such a way that we will have no cause to be surprised or ashamed when our Lord returns to judge the living and the dead. And so the most important question for us as disciples is this. What time is it? What time is it? Because history is not moving in endless, meaningless cycles. It's a straight line, and it's headed somewhere very definite. Paul tells us the hour is very late, or we could also say very early. The night is almost over. The day is nearly here. It's still night. It's dark. The grass is covered in frost. The sun has not yet risen, not yet, but there on the eastern horizon, the first paleness of dawn. The night Paul is speaking of is this present evil age, and it's dominated by the powers of sin and death and evil and injustice, and we see that in the world all around us. But the darkness of this night is not endless. This age is nearly over. Any moment the sun will rise and all shadow will flee forever. The day we're longing for is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the true king returns to destroy all evil and to wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. John foresees for the old order of things has passed away. This is the future salvation that Paul says is nearer now than when we first believed. We do not know the day or the hour, but we do know that February 18th, 2018, is one day closer than it was yesterday. And tomorrow will be another day closer still. And if this is true, Paul says, if the hour is so late, then for God's sake, wake up from your slumber. There you are in the deepest REM sleep, 
Your mouth is hanging open, drool is sliding out, you're dead to all reality. And that's what it's like when you're living mindlessly according to the values of this age, dead to what truly matters. And you must force yourself awake. You've already hit the snooze button too many times, rolled over too often. You are about to miss a glorious sunrise. Get out of bed, put off those deeds of darkness, stop doing those stupid things that belong to the old order of death. And instead, strap on the armor of light that is deliberately set yourself to acquire these moral virtues that Paul's been speaking about. And maybe the most striking part of our text is Paul's exhortation in verse 13 to behave decently as in the daytime. Now read this carefully because he's been clear that it's still night. The day might be near, but it's not here yet. It's still night, but yet in the remaining night, we're to behave as if daytime has already arrived. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new has arrived. So we're living in the overlap of the ages. We belong to this old and fading order of evil and injustice. And we have duties here to the state and to society, but we also belong to this coming new creation. And here we are in the overlap between these two eras, a foot in one world and a foot in the other. We have citizenship here, but we also have citizenship above in heaven where Christ is. And so our eternal life has already begun when we first put our faith in Christ. It's begun now. And let's behave as we will surely behave when the coming world of perfect justice, holiness, and love arrives. We should be living according to the values of that world which will last and will never fade away rather than this one which is soon to be over. See, drunkenness and sexuality and sexual immorality and quarreling and jealousy, those are marks of life in an old and dying world. Why would you be planning how to indulge these destructive addictions that belong to the flesh, your old way of living? Those things only brought forth fruit that led to death. Jesus, our pioneer, has gone before us as the first fruits of the coming resurrection. When we clothe ourselves in him, that is, by the Spirit, daily choose to embody the very life of Christ that we received when we were baptized into him, we're putting on the true self that God created us to be, destined for the world as God means it to be. We belong to the order of the new dawn, And so let's resolve to discharge all the obligations that God requires to the state and to our neighbor so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray and ask God for the help we so desperately need to do this. Father, we thank you for our new life in Christ, this life of the age to come, the age we're longing for. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that demonstrate that grace is good and grace is powerful and it changes us. And we ask that you would forgive us for our cheap words and our shallow piety, the way we have taken your name in vain and the way we've lived our lives. We don't just want to talk about great things, Lord. We want to live them. Make us so awake and so alert to coming glory and coming salvation that the beauty of our lives causes strangers to join the ranks of those who will praise you forever and ever in your new creation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray.
Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.